Hello, and welcome to another episode of Media Industry Conversations. I'm your host, Kyle Rather. This speaker series was developed as a part of a course in the Department of Radio, Television, and Film at the University of Texas at Austin. Students hear from industry professionals who talk about their experiences, knowledge, and thoughts on the changing media landscape. This week's guest is Jared Hoffman, the president of Generate. After graduating from the RTF department at Texas, Hoffman worked as a literary agent for the talent agency CAA. He was the SVP of video programming for Defy Media, and his company Generate, which is a part of Defy, now focuses on not only managing talent, but also producing media content, including branded videos and series. Hoffman talked about his career path through the industry, how both management and production has changed since he started, and what it's like to produce and manage media across multiple new platforms and spaces. He spoke on November 23rd, 2015 on the UT campus, and the conversation was hosted by Elisa Perrin. Greetings, everyone. Welcome. We're down to the last, second to last of our visitors, Jared Hoffman, visiting here for the Media Industries Conversation. Uh, and before we get started, I just want to do my usual thanks to my colleague, Cindy McCreary, for helping coordinate the class, as well as RTAs, Tim Piper and Kyle Rather. Thanks to the RTF department and the Moody College of Communication for funding this as well. Okay, so let me just give you a brief introduction to Mr. Hoffman, and then he'll give us more details imminently about his career trajectory. Uh, so uh, another of our illustrious RTF grads uh, graduated a while back, but not too far. <laughs> so my degree says. <laughs> yeah. uh, and his background includes working as an agent at CAA, both in film and new media. And then moving on to be Senior Vice President of Video Programming for Defy Media, and he is currently the President of Generate. And what exactly all that means, we're going to talk about in the next hour and 15 minutes, uh, discussing such issues as branded content and producing content across platforms and managing talent. Those are some of the items on our agenda uh, for today, as well as some advice for all of you about working in the media industries. So, please join me in welcoming Jared Hoffman. Okay, so, let's just start with the basic question of uh, what, how did you uh, figure out what you were interested in doing? What did you do at UT to prepare? Or did you do anything at UT to prepare? I did a lot when I was here to prepare. So, (laughs) I mean, for me... Um, I made the most of my internships, honestly, as a student. Um, Between my sophomore and my junior year, I interned at KXAS in Dallas. Um, And then between my junior and my senior year, I interned at uh, Longfellow Pictures in New York. And I also interned in banking in New York while I was there that summer. And between the two, I don't think I would have gotten the second internship had it not been for the first internship. Uh, And then for the second one, that was really... Uh, a woman named Rachel Horowitz was my sort of intern liaison when I was at Longfellow, and she was a big part of making a couple of necessary phone calls for me to get where I was in the Miller CA, uh, which I think I started give or take six weeks after I graduated from here. 
Wow. So uh, what kind of... I enjoyed none of my life. <laughs> That's what you should get from that. So yeah, you got hooked up through an internship at yeah. uh, for your CAA position. And so tell us what it was like moving up the ranks at CAA a little bit or it was what a, you did. It was a different time than it is now. I mean, if those of you have read The Mailroom, um, which is the sort of definitive book on that period, I'm in like six of the different stories that happened there, none of which I'm proud of, or am I? Um, <laughs> But it was, you know, it was a, it was a fun place to, to work. It was very much, I, I often say, my best training for my first job in college was fraternity pledgeship. Um, because the amount of hours were 20 hours a day. We were yelled at constantly by people who had no idea what they were talking about and asked us to do things that were ridiculous. It really was <laughs> the best, being a pledge was the best training available for that. Um, but for us in that time period, the, you were really in the belly of the beast. I mean, that was my graduate school was being able to get into all these rooms, famous people walking up and down the hallway, the sort of demystifying of how important and magical the entertainment business was by really being in those places at those times. So, you know, I literally, I started my first, how many of you, has anyone talked about the mailroom system in here before at the big agencies? A little bit, um, Deborah McIntosh very briefly did. So, um, back in the day, it's not like this anymore, by the way, something about federal law and state laws and things that they don't let you do anymore. But um, when I started the mailroom at CA, the, the process was very simple. You started, the lowest person on the mailroom had to go shopping. And what shopping meant was that with your fancy college degree and your fancy Hugo Boss or Armani suit, you went to Ralph's uh, in West Hollywood every morning at 5 a.m. You had a relationship. The best relationship we had in the, all of town was with the produce manager at that Ralph's. And Tom's laughing because he's heard these stories before. Um, and you literally crawled around the back to find yellow bananas. Because what when you go to a supermarket, bananas are almost never ripe. They're not supposed to be because you're supposed to put them on your shelf at home for a couple of days and have them in your kitchen. We were serving bananas that day. So you would literally be breaking open crates in your suit while buying all the food for the entire agency for the day. And you did that for, if you were lucky, I was lucky. You did it till the next person got hired. So I did it for two weeks because I started one day before the next guy started. He did it for three months because they did not hire anybody, and he's been mad at me for 20 years, um, because they didn't hire anybody, and I literally I got to start the day before he did. So that was sort of how you made your bones, and what you did on the weekends in the mailroom was sort of how you defined where you were. For me, I always wanted to be in the, in the writers and directors business. So Beth Swafford and Michael Wimmer and all these big, big lit agents, I would go to their offices every Friday afternoon and knock on the door and say, what can I read for you this weekend? And for me, an average weekend read was in between eight and ten scripts with full coverage written every single weekend, um, which for me it was sort of how I was able to sort of navigate my way. And so what were the normal hours that you had during the week like? 4 a.m. till midnight every day yeah. for a year and a half, and then it got better to 8 to 10. Um, it's better now. Yeah. It's only like, let's see, this past week I was in production, so I only worked 14-hour days for six to eight weeks. Yeah, they need to hear that, though. <laughs> um, so how, where did you go from the mailroom to the sort of next steps? Um, so for me, I was in the mailroom for 13 months. Um, I was lucky and unlucky. I was up for Richard Lovett, who's, a CEO, who's the president of CAA, still is. I was up to be his assistant. I did not get that job. Um, as it worked out for me personally, had I gotten that job, I probably would not have married my wife or had my two kids um, because I was supposed to go to a wedding in Houston where I met my wife, which, I, which is a wedding I for sure would not have gone to 100% had I been Richard Love's first assistant. I would have stayed in L.A. and said I'm, I would have called my best friend in Dallas and said I'm not coming. 
I have this job that's much more important than your stupid wedding is. I don't care that I'm in the wedding. You'll have one less groomsman. You have 11 of us. You'll get over it. <laughs> um, I didn't get that job. I was the next person out of the mailroom to another agent's desk. Um, and I was on his desk for about 10 months. And while I was on his desk, I wrote a business plan for CA to get into the, what was then called the large format film business, which you all know is IMAX. So all these big movies that are released on IMAX, um, I did that. Um, I made the first deals for IMAX with The Matrix and Star Wars. The, they're the old Star Wars, not the new ones. Um, <laughs> or the new ones, but not the old, old. Anyway, um, one, two, and three. And, uh, and that sort of propelled me into the new media group at CA. Uh, from 2000 to 2004. After then, I split time from 2004 to 2007 in the new media group and the lit department before having had enough of being an agent and deciding that I wanted to go back to what I wanted to do in the first place, which was be a producer. So what was it like to be with the new media group? I'm curious what a new media agent does. I mean, at that time, it was literally the Wild West. And it's it's wild now, but it was more wild then because no, there wasn't anything. Everything was Am I allowed to use power language in here? It's up to you. Everything was bullshit then. <laughs> it's kind of bullshit now, but then it was really bullshit. Because you'd hear, oh, my God, it's going to be amazing. Like People have these amazing phones and these things. You can stream media and do whatever. But really, things like Pop.com existed and Icebox existed, and there were all these companies that really weren't ready for primetime. And not that the companies weren't or that the ideas weren't, but the truth is, is they were, let's call it five years, maybe a little bit more, they were ahead of the technology. So what, like when I was a student here, the guys will laugh at me, but it's fine. Uh, when I lived, I was a senior and I lived on West Campus in a house that is now an apartment building. <laughs> Give me a minute. Um, uh, we all used to get really excited when we had a 28-8 connection instead of a 14-4 connection. Now there's four people in the room. They're all way back there behind the camera that know what that is. But it, you, that was twice as fast as your regular dial-up connection. And it was the greatest thing ever because, like, you could download a picture in three minutes and not 15 minutes. So, you know, 10 years later, the world wasn't that different. So there were all these great ideas about how you could use media and how you could use digital technology to share things. But the truth is, is they were ahead of their times. And the, none of those companies exist anymore. Pop.com was Steven Spielberg and the DreamWorks guys. That's gone. Icebox was a bunch of guys from ICM. And a bunch of, I mean, we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars. That was just ahead of its time. Now, that time does work. And you can stream real media and you can do these other things on your phone. But we spent a lot of time running around to anybody we wanted to in, in rooms. Frankly, I was 25 years old meeting with CEOs of Fortune 10 companies because we could. Mm -hmm. um, whether it was Coca-Cola or wherever it was, talking about how they could play differently in content. It was just ahead of its time. So eventually, I got frustrated with that because we were spending a lot of time not doing anything other than flying around the country and going to meetings, which wasn't satisfying for me personally, and we stopped doing that. So were you, you were meeting with, like, uh, advertising agencies? Advertising or? agencies, big brands directly. Um, this idea of disintermediate, I, I represented for a long time this, this technology called IPix, which was out of Knoxville, Tennessee, where they had developed a technology where you could stitch two cameras together so you could literally live inside an environment through video. Uh, it was a huge thing in real estate. And they wanted to tell video stories with it. And the first deal I ever made actually as an agent for them was a deal for Steven Spielberg to direct a short film using their technology. Don't look for it because it never happened. <laughs> so it sounds like a lot of sort of halting and that was dealing just, things out. That's what and, the time was. Yeah. Which, by the way, is also like it is now. 
there's a lot of halting and things that don't ever happen. You guys get used to that. Yeah, they've heard a lot of uh, people come in and say how many things don't get made. Yeah. And I've, I've actually probably said this to Richard before. Like, if I won the lottery, I think it'd be fun to do like a 50-year study of Variety magazine or The Hollywood Reporter and do a, do a real like scientific dig on what got reported in here that actually happened versus what got reported in here that never actually happened and what the percentage difference is. And my guess is, off the top of my head, it's probably like 80, 20, 80 never happened, 20% actually happened in some version of what they said was going to happen. Yeah, I wonder with Deadline if it's even more disproportionate. Well, Deadline is a ton worse because Deadline's all about us calling Nelly and saying, hey, I need you to just put this story in, please. I'll take you out to the palm. It's okay, thanks. So. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> well, okay. So, what? Why did you leap ship? How did the generate transition go? So, for me, um, the uh, this is so. I was um, I was sort of tired of being an agent. Um, it, being an agent for those of you who are anybody interested in doing that for a living. You're not. <laughs> so we have two people interested in being an agent? Richard didn't count. Yeah, no. I saw, I saw a hesitating hand over here, but that's... So, I mean, being an agent is a very specific thing, and you have to love every single minute of what you're doing because it is a absolutely taxing job. Um, I always wanted to be a producer. I sort of found my way into being an agent because when I worked for Rachel in New York, what she said to me was, please don't be a producer. You'll be bored out of your mind. You'll kill 50 people. Don't do that. It's too boring for you. Don't do it. <laughs> Um, and I've actually now found a way into producing where I have 15 active projects at a given moment. I'm never bored and 80 people that work for me. So I'm able to, my, for myself, keep going. But for, for most people, being a producer is a, this is a slow existence. Um, it's not cool. It's not fancy. It's not constantly things are going on. Like, hey, I sent somebody out for a draft of notes and then you have nothing to do for eight weeks. That's how being a producer works. So... I ended up being an agent, which was great for me for time. I wouldn't change anything I did about it. The only thing I would change is when I was emotionally and physically done being an agent, I should have left. I shouldn't have stayed the three extra years. I should have hit the road then. But in those three years, I built a business plan to start a new company. Um, and I was actually, uh, Richard Eisen knows the story. I was, I was actually on a plane on the way here with Jordan Levin, who I know came and talked to you guys first. Um, and we were on our way to a burnt orange uh, meeting with Tom and, and Richard. We were going to listen to a bunch of pitches from students. This is it's probably nine. It was ten years ago. Two thousand four. Uh, no, it was probably two thousand six. It was probably ten years ago. Um, and I was telling Jordan on the plane about this business that I built, and Saban was about to fund it and whatever. And Jordan said, "Why are you doing that? Just come work with me." And I was like, "That's easier." So <laughs> I ended up leaving their uh, negotiating deal and go to join Jordan, which I did. And then he left me with the company, which was really nice. I'm going to go work at the NFL, whatever. Um, <laughs> but uh, so how much? How long had been generated? Been running before one year. You... I was. I started literally 11 months after it started. And what? Did you do sort of how have you moved through there? Because you've been there, what, eight years now? Yeah, I mean, I joined as a partner. I've been there for nine years, uh, February 2007 to now, so going into this holiday season. So um, for me, I started as a partner, and the nice part about what we built there was we really had, and we this is still sort of how we're built, even underneath the Defy umbrella, um, we really had people with varying skill sets who all wanted to work together. So if I was sold a TV show, I could go talk to Jordan or Pete about, okay, now what do I do? I just sold a TV show. Um, if they, they saw somebody they wanted to represent, they could come talk to me about how to represent somebody and what those pieces were. And we all sort of learned from each other within the process. Also at the time, and because of my digital background in, at CA, we made a lot of money doing 
brand entertainment. So, um, which we still do a lot of. So it's sort of, we just sort of hit all those buttons. There wasn't any sort of magic sauce to it. The truth is, is the magic was really that we just all loved going to work together every day. So, I mean, that really was, you know, we would be at work until nine, 10 o'clock at night every night. My wife would go, do you have to, can you really have to stay at work at 10? I'd be like, I don't have to. <laughs> um, but it was fun. And we really spent a lot of time. And, you know, when you're, when you're working at a creative business, you never know what a good idea is going to show up. I mean, I, you know, there's a, a project that we had um, at TBS a few years ago where my now almost 13 year old, but he was probably six or seven at the time. I went home one afternoon and he said, dad, you want to play wall ball? And I was like, Okay. And I went into the office next day and I looked at Jordan Pete and I said, when was the last time we played wall ball? And we sold a TV series, which didn't ever went to series, but we sold a huge pilot to TBS. Um, all because I went in and said, let's play wall ball. And we built this whole big show about adults playing playground games. So that was the sort of place that it was and still is. Yeah. And you said there's 80 people that are... At, at any given moment. And we just wrapped production on Smosh's new, on the second sequel of Smosh's new YouTube series, which we ran. Um, we're in production right now. We're about to go in production with CW. I have 17 full-time employees uh, in New York and Los Angeles. And then that doesn't count. That's just that's just our group within Defy, which is probably 300, 400 now. Yeah. And so I'm going to try to walk through that a little bit. But before we do that, maybe we can talk about, in a little bit more detail beyond you, know, you being a producer, like what... What do you do? What does your job involve these days as much as you can summarize it? Because I'm sure it changes quite a bit. It does. I mean, I think, I mean, honestly, my job involves dreaming and getting rejected on a regular basis. That's what <laughs> my job involves. Um, so, I mean, I, 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 I choose not to sugarcoat it to you guys. I've been lucky enough for a lot of years to get to come talk to UT students. I lie like crazy to UCLA and USC students all the time. <laughs> I don't care much about that, but I do care about you guys. Um, so, I mean, that's really what the job is. It was interesting. My, my stepfather was out of work for about a year, and I was talking to my mother, and I said, you know, why doesn't he just start a business? He's 55 years old. He's super smart, went to West Point. He has five postgraduate degrees. I'm like, why don't you start a business? And she goes, well, he's not used to being, he doesn't like to be rejected. And I went, all I do is get rejected. It's literally on any, on any given day, whether it's, the, the tease of being right on the one yard, oh, we're going to order that to series. It's going to be great. And you're like, oh, it's fantastic. Yeah, so um, no, we're passing, um, which happens all the time, all the way to walking in a room, pitching your guts out with what you believe in, and then nobody ever calling you again, which also happens on a pretty regular basis. Um, and that's not just me. That's the job. That's the business. That's what we've chosen to do, and that's my team and everybody around us. So for me, on a, on a daily basis, um, development is constant. What's a new idea? What are we trying to do? What are we trying to figure out? Whether that's scripted or non-scripted. Dealing with budgets is a constant thing, which is a whole other universe to deal with. Um, dealing with problems is a constant thing, too. There's always – somebody always screwed up something. Um, it's just a matter of understanding what those screw-ups are and how do you avoid them. I'm pretty patient about first-time screw-ups, second-time screw-ups that are the same thing or really not appreciated. Because um, there's no reason for them, and sort of balancing those pieces. So it's hard to say sort of what's a what's a what's a regular day. There aren't any. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, literally going from the last two weeks where we've been in production to sitting there and overseeing an entire team, and my whole job on that show as EP because I'm not running that show creatively is to sit there and say. Um, it's 4:50 p.m. By the way, for those of you that are paying attention. Um, <laughs> <laughs> So, sorry. Um, I'm just wrapped. It's all good. Um, you know, 
on those days, it's just to make sure that nobody really does anything totally stupid and gets the coverage they need, and you're sort of in the back going, you don't want to do that shot, um, to another series we're doing right now for Verizon's new platform where I am the creative showrunner, and every single minute is sweating about, oh, that story's not going to cut, this isn't going to work, can we get this, can we get this, I know the sun's going down, what are we doing? Like, it's just every day is a different set of challenges. So I guess uh, one question Obviously, you're dealing with film, you've dealt with TV, you've dealt with web content, YouTube. So when you're developing material, like how much are you thinking about where it's going? Never. Really? Never. So when or how do those kinds of decisions come in? For, for me, the belief is always, is it a good idea or not? And do I want to do that or not? Um, and then it doesn't take very long afterward naturally to figure out where those things belong. Uh, you know, for us, and this goes back to what sort of Jordan and Pete's original philosophy was to generate. If you say you're a TV producer, you're by definition not a film producer, so why would you say that? If you say you're a movie producer, then you don't make television shows, so why would you say that? And the truth is, is that the modern world doesn't force you into one way or another. I'm a storyteller. That's what we do for a living. That's what I do all day long. That's what I enjoy doing. And some days that medium is digital. Some days that medium is your cell phone. Some days that medium is a movie theater. Some days it's a book. Um, I've sold books. I've done all those other pieces. It's just about where does a story most naturally belong, and more often than not, where is the right first place for that story to be told? So how much do you feel like that's a philosophy that's across the industry now? Do you, or do you think that your company is still fairly distinct on that front? I think it's a growing philosophy, but I think it's an industry full of arrogance where people – look, film, film is never – I'm, I don't want to say never because who knows what happens in 10 years, but film is never not going to be the prettiest girl at the party. It just is. And even shitty movies that end up on one screen are still prettier in, in the universe than television shows that 25 million people watch. And God for, and they're a whole bunch prettier than digital series that 50 million people watch. Mm -hmm. They just are. Mm -hmm. So I don't, know how, I don't know how that ever changes. I mean, it's funny. You know, when I was an, an agent... The TV department was always pissed off and jealous at the film department because they're like, you know, we make literally 50 times more money than you guys do, but everybody wants to be in the movie business. And now, like, now, and like television didn't have an ugly kid. Now they do. It's called digital. So <laughs> now the digital guy's like, oh, I want to be in television. Like, yeah, but you make a lot. No, I don't care. I want to be, I want my TV show to be picked up. So it's a, it's, there's, and someday there'll be another, there'll be a digital have an ugly child, like chalk paintings or whatever it ends up being. That'll be 10 times more popular than digital is, but no one will care about it because it's not the thing that was cool. So, um, it's just a different way to look at it. I've been lucky. You know, my, I mean, my, my film that was out, I backed into it. It was a television show. So it just sort of worked out that way. We sell movies, yes. Uh, the movie business is a terrible business to be in from a business. Like, if you like eating, find something else to do. Um, They've heard that a lot this semester. It's a terrible place. It's, <laughs> it, it is a patronage business. It's worse than it's ever been before, probably back, probably ever, honestly, than it's ever been. And if you have super rich parents or are married to somebody super rich or you win the lottery, make a lot of movies and enjoy yourself. If you want to eat, you're going to need another job. So in terms of TV versus digital, do you think you can make a decent living or most people are making a decent living in digital? Or like how does that compare to TV these days? I mean, I think for, for making a living is a distinction from, from doing what you want to do and telling stories. So, you know, for me, when I sat in these chairs over in a – room that was linoleum in CMA, um, the, there was this big dream. Uh, for me, anyway, and I can't speak for my, for my classmates, but for me, like I always believe, hey, I'll go to Hollywood and I'll get to make money and do whatever. Mm, I should have gone into banking. Um, 
the my friends who my guys went to business school, I make a lot more money than I do. But I get to make dreams on a regular basis, and that's a lot of fun. I think there's never been, and I say this all the time, there's never been a better time to be in the entertainment business writ large. There's never been more opportunities. It's never been less expensive to make things and tell your stories, and it's never been more accessible to anyone. Um, there's an interesting conversation going on um, amongst a number of people about the value of film schools in a world, and I know we're sitting in a film school, but this part I probably shouldn't say, but whatever, okay, you is, you know, when I, went to, <laughs> when I went to film school here 20 years ago, you had to go to film school. Texas was a top five film school, and you had to go because the only way you could get access to machines and cameras and whatever was to go to a film school. So there was a real value proposition amongst, you know, there was the, the NYU guys and the USC guys and the UCLA guys, and Texas was in that conversation because you had to do that to learn those things. The truth is, is today, you don't have to do any of that. I can make a move. I have a 4K camera in my pocket. So that's the, the reality is, is the world is open and will very quickly weed out who can and who can't. I mean, remember sitting in meetings at CA, this is 2000, 2001, right when the internet sort of the first internet bubble and everybody said, you know, oh my God, what's going to happen to Steven Spielberg? And here's the thing. Steven Spielberg is Steven Spielberg because he's better at making movies than anybody in this room is. That's just how it is. Robert Rodriguez is right who he is because he's better at it than everybody else. That's just a fact. So you can access to doesn't mean you can write. Everybody in this room has a pen and paper in their hand, but no one, no, no one in here is Stephen King yet. You can be, but there's a, that's the reality. He has access to the same toys everybody else does. So there is a universe that says the Internet and digital have allowed you to go tell your stories. Here's the tricky part. Who's going to see them? So, you know, when we were doing Generate in the beginning and when people talk about digital, you talk about the disintermediation of media. And the truth is, is that there is, the reality is you can put anything you want to a worldwide audience right now, but if a tree falls in a forest, no one will hear it. That's the truth. So it probably makes a noise, but nobody knows because nobody heard it. So the trick becomes how do you find ways to tap into social media, to tap into relationships, to tap into micro, to, into, into micro networks, macro networks, and find a way for your voice to be heard and then continue to tell that story, that voice. What we know, and we've learned this in digital, human beings are creatures of habit. Um, the big web channels that exist now all have very similar principles that allowed them to exist. And that was consistent programming and consistent days and consistent times. Whether that was every day, whether it was once a week, every other day, they're all, they all followed the same pattern, which was, which was much more old media than new media when they did it. Everybody was like, when new media means I can put my stuff in whenever you want, that's fine. But people don't want to hear that. They want to know that the cool new thing is coming up at 3 o'clock on Thursdays, and you have to be there. The access to it afterward is what's interesting, and the allowance for that to be discovered over time is, is, a, is a big difference maker that television now is starting to figure out how to deal with, with VOD and other pieces. But that universe is a different space. So I'm rambling now. So no, no, it's, it's helpful. It's interesting. Tim, a time cry would have been great there, I'm just saying. <laughs> they don't know that secret. You just yeah. gave it away. <laughs> um, that's how I keep everything in order. It's all good. Um, okay, so how much, I know Smosh is pretty dang huge. They're huge. Right. Um, how much do you deal with or how do you deal with YouTube stars, YouTube talent, or how does that fit into the picture of what you guys do? I mean, for me, I really don't. Um, we your company. We, I mean, the company does. The company is the <laughs> third or fourth largest owner of YouTube channels and YouTube eyeballs. Um, my expertise there is really high-end production. 
Um, so when Ian and Anthony, the Smosh guys, need to do a big high-end project, we usually end up executing it for the company internally. But in terms of the day-in and day-out run-of-the-mill production that we do, and I don't mean that negatively, but there's a lot of churn. We do between 80 and 100 videos a day. I don't touch any of that. It's not what I'm tasked with, and frankly, candidly, I don't want to. Now, you guys have a management component, Correct. right? Correct, 200-some-on clients. So how does that work? Because we haven't had anyone who uh, deals with management in the class before. Do you, are you involved in that at all? I mean, I personally have four clients, and I oversee the whole management business. Yeah, so maybe you could tell our students briefly, first of all, what the difference is between agents and managers, because I don't know that we've ever had that uh, the address. The age-old question. age-old question, just so they know that, but also you know, what you might do in terms of managing clients. So, so the difference between agents and managers is a legal difference in all candor, right? So by California state law, age, uh, managers are not allowed to make deals or negotiate on behalf of their clients. That is really the primary difference. Um, in today's world, it's very different than it used to be. Um, I used to hate managers, for the record, and everyone knows that about me. I was a manager killer. Um, I thought they were useless and entirely pointless. And if you go back, can I talk about history for a minute? Please do. Okay, so if you go back in the history of talent representation over time, you go back 100 years for lack of a better number, um, talent had one person in their lives, and it was their lawyer. And that was the only person in their lives, and that lawyer was blanketed them completely around them. Then if you go back to, I hate that Shots is here because they'll tell me my dates are all messed up, but that's cool. <laughs> um, if you go back to sort of the era of William Morris and the William Morris Agency, in the, in the 40s and 50s, the agent got in between the lawyer and the talent. And the lawyer moved over here, and then the agent was here. And sort of in that time period, managers started to show up, but really a manager was a fancy way of, hey, will you carry my bag out to the car? That's really what the job was. Um, and that sort of persisted through the sort of Mike Ovitz era into the late 80s, early 90s, when the manager pushed the agent out. So now if you're a lawyer, you're the furthest person from your clients. Generalization, by the way, there are lawyers that are very close to their clients, but for the most part, they are the furthest person from the client. They make less money. They make 5% as opposed to 10%. And a lawyer, a traditional entertainment lawyer, will have literally three or four or 500 clients. Uh, most of what they do, there are exceptions, like I said, to every rule, but most of what they do is churn the same paperwork with studios and networks over and over and over again. Agents, when I left being an agent, I had 87 clients. Um, now, today's agents in a world where there are really two dominant major agencies and everybody else sort of is in different tiers, the agency business is really a corporate business. They have hundreds of clients, and the manager's job now becomes about managing the agents and managing the clients. For me personally, I'm my client's business, business partner. So for me, I'm their producing partner. Most of my clients, I produce almost everything that they do. I read every script overnight. I give notes. I'm in the development process with them all the way down to the, to the zero level, whether I'm producing or not. Um, that's what, on the lit side what we do. On the talent side, um, we're the day-to-days. So more often than not, our, our talent managers will talk to their managers every day unless they're in production, which slows it down. Um, they'll talk to their agents once every couple of months. And I have clients that don't ever talk to their agents ever. They may, we talk to the agents. So that's sort of a, a brief history of the representation business by me. Um, <laughs> but as those pieces have really spread out, I don't know if there'll be another person in between over time, but that really is sort of how the process has worked. So when I, hate, when I was an agent, I hated managers and wanted to be closer to my client than me, and I realized it was a battle that you weren't going to win. So I got rid of 87 of my clients, went down to a couple, and... Do what I do.
So uh, what kinds of projects do your clients tend to be involved in? Is it mine personally or the companies overall? Whichever you wish to. I mean, the companies overall, we represent uh, most of the cast of Black Sales. We represent the new Electra, um, Elodie Young. We represent a, a number of big, big, big talent. Uh, Pat Oswald, Pete Holmes, um, on that side of our business. Um, for me, the lit side of our business is, is very small. We made a, uh, a decision two years ago to, to pare back our lit business and focus on the talent business because that's where the opportunities were. So we represent the showrunner of The Walking Dead. We represent the showrunner of, uh, of uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. We represent, uh, I'm just trying to go through the mic in my head, um, Tim Matheson, who's a huge director and an actor. Um, sort of the universe we live in, but it's mostly showrunner level or creator level mm -hmm. so that we can be part of that process with them. That makes sense. So you have the management side that you're involved in. You have the production side that you're involved in. Your, your company, so Generate is both hiring people to produce in-house or, uh, or hiring, staffing up. Staffing, we staff up in-house. Right, right. And so what other activities is Generate involved in? Those are the primary those ones. Those are the primary ones. So Everything sort of falls underneath one of those two categories. Okay, so maybe we can talk about branded content. Sure, branded. that falls under production, but okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, but more specifically, like what component of uh, what you're doing in terms of production is bringing in advertisers at the outset, bringing in agencies. So, we, so for a while, we tried to do that. Mm -hmm. And we found out that it's a waste of time and you shouldn't do that. Okay. <laughs> um, the truth is the advertising business is... Um, holds very tightly onto its process. So the, the, one of the things that's very interesting about the advertising business versus the television business, and as much as you try to morph the two together, right? So in television, the success is I got another season ordered, right? I got another season ordered, same thing in the movie business, I got a sequel ordered, whatever it is. In the advertising business, nobody does the same thing two years in a row, ever. If you do it again, it's not good. So there's this really interesting sort of those things are at odds. Mm -hmm. So when you execute very well in the in the in the TV business, you're used to great, order another season of it. Fantastic. When you execute well on the brand entertainment business, all you're doing is getting yourself an opportunity to pitch again next year for the same people for five of the people against you again for new ideas. So it's a different world. Packaging brands into content is challenging from a driver perspective, if you want them to drive it, because it goes back to the tree in the forest analogy of where are people going to see it. So we've chosen over the last several years to back away from that. We did it for a long time. Um, our side of the business, the Defy side does a bunch of it, but we've decided to, if an agency or brand has a point of view on something they want to do, we'll come in and take it from second base around the plate, and we'll grow it and we'll build it and we'll execute it. But when we see a new idea, we don't spend a lot of time fixed it um we don't spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to get a brand to pay for that okay. it's a losing battle gotcha so maybe we can talk about um or you can walk us through your involvement with a specific project and pick uh, one i'm some, happy to talk about it i figured the walking dead perfect we got to kind of go there right we uh, easy okay so can you tell us when and how you get involved with the walking dead web series like what your involvement is how that sure. works yeah so I mean, it's an interesting story. So uh, I had longer ago than I could think about it. Four years ago, uh, we got a call from AMC. And Walking Dead at the time was a, brand, was a relatively brand new series. It was a comic book, obviously, by Robert Kirkman, who wasn't that widely read, to be honest, as a comic book. Frank Darabont had found it. Um, I had done some mother dinners with Frank when I was his agent for a little while uh, before he was removed from the show, forcibly. 
Um, so the, uh, the opportunity um, there was they wanted to feed their fan base in between seasons. So what's happened in television is, and how many of you are watching network television right now? How many of you know what network television is right now? <laughs> Should ask a question differently. So there's this new thing called the fall finale, which has just now shown up on the radar, which never existed until literally like a year ago. Um, but cable used to do, always would do these finales where you'd have nine months, six, eight, nine months of dead time between a series, a series cycle and another series cycle. And what they figured out was because of the speed of media, if you don't feed your audience anything in that time period, they will go eat somewhere else. And when they eat somewhere else, they don't come back because it gives somebody else a chance to, to get fed, um, staying in that analogy. So AMC came to us and they said, look, we want to do something to keep the audience engaged in between cycles. We want to keep them engaged digitally because distribution is easier on that. We are on their website and on YouTube the first time through. We actually, on the production side, had no idea about Pizza Hut um, the first cycle. None at all. And, and thankfully, because they had nothing to do with it. We knew about Hyundai in cycle three, and we didn't have a sponsor in cycle two. So um, they came to us and they said, what do you want to do? So Greg Nicotero at the time was the was the multi-multi-multi-Emmy and Oscar-winning makeup effects artist from Walking Dead, who they wanted to give him a chance to direct. So we produced him. We grabbed a writer that was a friend of Greg's and said, what do you guys want to do? And the way that we approached it was we knew what our budget was. There's a good general budgeting rule to learn about all things you make, right? There's two ways to approach it. Either tell me what you want, I'll tell you how much it costs, or tell me what you got, and I'll tell you what I can make. There are really no other versions. Um, and one has to fit into the other. This was a tell me how much you got, and then we'll tell you what we can make. But we didn't want to, we didn't want to pin the writer in. So uh, we knew we wanted to make, we wanted to do the story of Bicycle Girl, which is the famous zombie from the first episode. We wanted to tell her backstory. So the first draft that we got literally had tanks going down a street, had helicopters flying over, had missiles being launched. We're like, this is awesome. Um, we're not making this. So um, we sat with the writer and we worked through and were able to sort of distill what the things he really wanted to do were versus what he'd written on the page and really stay core to his idea. So we uh, went back, worked with him. We shot those in two days in Los Angeles for a, a literally a fraction of the cost of what main show cost um, and are very proud of them, all the way down to a strange thing which happens on the internet, which I didn't know about. Uh, we won a Webby again this year for our first cycle. We got called by the network and said, hey, you guys won another award. And we went, for what? Because <laughs> we hadn't made one in two years. And the... The Webby Awards, if it's online and continues to do well, they'll continue to award you with Best Drama. So we've now won Best Drama twice, first show we made a few years ago. We won a WGA Award for that. We're nominated for DGA Award. Um, and they, we're really proud of them. So that was cycle one. We did cycle two. We did cycle three. And then, interestingly enough, they took it away from us. AMC said they were going to do cycle four themselves. Couldn't pull it off. Um, and they have not done one since because the skill sets necessary to do it are very specific, and they found that out the hard way. Cool. So have you guys done other projects similar to that? We'd actually done Teen Wolf before that. Um, has anyone ever heard about Teen Wolf? Not the Michael J. Fox one. I'm going to ask that. <laughs> There's a show on MTV called Teen Wolf about a guy who turns into a wolf. Um, we actually used our Teen Wolf, the, the DP on main show of Teen Wolf um, for Walking Dead, Jonathan Hall, who just shot my stuff for me for, uh, for Smosh. Um, 
we'd done that before, which was sponsored by AT&T. Uh, it was called The Cure, Search for the Cure. We did a micro series for them first. Cool. So uh, back to Smosh for a second. Sure. And just the YouTube talent in general. So do you scout or does your company or Defy scout for talent for, from YouTube or other digital platforms? Or how does that process work? I don't know how they decide who's coming into the network or not. I'm sure it's a I'm sure it's a numbers game based on uh, economics and sort of where people are and where their growth patterns are. It's a very the to me one of the key differences between the YouTube ecosystem and the television and movie ecosystem is the YouTube, YouTube ecosystem is analytics based and objectively driven. Um, if you you could have the I don't care. So I don't. Th I think PewDiePie is terrible. Okay, <laughs> I don't get it. That guy makes like six million dollars a year because it's all about analytics and numbers and driving numbers and how the algorithm works. Um, there's no there's no intermediary in between to go. You're not funny, or that's great, or I love that idea. There's no hierarchy to push through. So on the one hand, super democratic. Like, literally pure democracy. People like it. You keep making it. It's easy. There's nobody to go, mm, we shouldn't do that. So it's just that, that, to me, like, that's sort of the key difference between the two. When I look at a comic or I look at a writer or director or a piece of material or an idea, I sit there and ask myself, okay, do I love this? Do I want to be part of this? Do I want to work on it? Do I want this to keep me up at 3 o'clock in the morning and keep me away from my family? The YouTube ecosystem does work that way at its bottom. But when you start to catch fire, repeatable fire, it's about numbers. So how, to what extent is your company involved in marketing or engaging in social media? Like, how does that work in relation to the content you're developing? It depends who the buyer is. So, you know, when the buyer is a third party and they have a point of view on what they're going to do, they usually do it. If the buyer is first party and we're doing it ourselves, we'll try to push our pieces. Gotcha. So maybe we can talk for a second about Defy. Sure. Um, and you can just sort of explain... You know, do you work with Defy much? What are what what is their structure? What is the relationship between Generate and Defy? Sure, I mean we're a wholly owned subsidiary. Um, it wasn't always that way. At first, we were integrated into the company, and then they spun us back out internally. For the most part, our job is television development, film development, and sort of higher end, longer term production. So most of the production that Defy does internally are very quick. Um, it's a short film. It's a short video. It's a piece that's doing very that, that goes over very quickly. Um, they're just not structured and and other than our division to handle longer term production. So when longer term production comes up, more often than not, it comes to us. So, a uh, hundred things, which is a new series that we're doing for Verizon's Go ninety platform, is us. Um, that was handed to us by Defy. They said we sold this. You guys go make it. Go handle it. Um, Part timers for Smosh and YouTube also handed to us. Went through that piece. Um, until a few months ago, they weren't really structured to take our ideas and try to do them on their own platform. We're now starting to do some of that. But it's an ever-evolving ecosystem between the two. Cool. So um, do you uh, work regularly with them? or? Yeah, I mean, I'll, we're in their offices. I talk to the president and CEO every other week. Cool. So what other uh, key, key stakeholders or companies do you tend to deal with regularly? Certain, you work with ad agencies. You work with... Ad agencies, all the major networks, um, some studios and producers, uh, but those are really the big pieces. Are you involved in gaming at all? I, we, I am not, and it, my group is really not. Okay. The company overall is. Um, gaming is a huge, 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 huge thing. Um, it's on the list of things I don't get. 
<laughs> I mean, I get what a game is, and I've played a game. I don't. My son, my nine-year-old, will sit there and watch Minecraft videos for hours on end. I don't get it, but I do acknowledge that it's a huge thing. Cool. So, uh, what about market research, or how does that work with your company or audience research? Do you? We'll do some, um, not a lot. I mean, a lot of what sort of drives our decisions is very traditional. Do you love that? Yes. Do you want to push for it? Yes. We'll look at the market and say, um, if that's a show that's been out there 10 different times and we don't feel like we have something that makes it new and unique and fresh that will push us over the hill, over the hump, then we'll back away from it. Um, but for the most part, the television business writ large and the feature film business writ large is really about how hard you're going to fight for it. So, you know, I'm not really interested in other people's opinions about whether or not it's a good idea or not. If we're really committed to it, we'll push and fight. And if we lose, we lose goes back to the getting rejected stuff I started with. <laughs> well, let me ask um, a question that a lot of our students are hearing very different perspectives on. You've obviously been out in L.A. since, you know, you graduated or pretty shortly thereafter. Do you think that they should move out to L.A. if they're interested in working in media? What other places or opportunities are there? Should Or what does Austin offer? What is your take on that? Uh, until further notice, the entertainment business exists in Los Angeles, California, and nowhere else in the world. <laughs> Okay, but you have a division in New York, right? We do, but that's it's a business division. I mean, okay. the truth is, if you want to be in the entertainment business, despite the fact that, ironically, very very little production actually happens in L.A. anymore because the state of California is stupid, um, the truth is, is if you want to be around the business itself, writers, directors, actors, producers, people that are going forward, it's L.A. I don't get it, by the way. Honestly, I'd love to move back here. South Africa is a great place. They have a lot of business there, too. But L.A. is the entertainment capital of the world, and that's not changing anytime soon, despite, look, Austin's tried, Dallas has tried, Chicago's tried, Miami's tried, New York's tried. There are a number of places that have tried. For whatever reason, no one seems to be able to figure out how to break it. Well, I'm curious, too, because Defy has hubs in a number of different places, too, but it's all sort of business side stuff, right? Yeah, I mean, all the production for the company. I mean, there is production that goes on in the digital space. You know, you can you can produce digital media from wherever you want. I mean, it doesn't matter. You can produce television wherever you want. Um, but that's different to me from how do you get into the ecosystem of the business. And if you want to – like, even, like, even Ian and Anthony, by way of example, right, with Smosh – they were in Sacramento for eight years. Now they're in Los Angeles. Right. So there's a certain spot where, and they still produce in Sacramento. They fly back and forth to Sacramento um, when they're not in LA shooting. But there's a there's a certain spot that you're out of the ecosystem of where those pieces are. Mm -hmm. So it's just, I mean, I don't I don't know how to describe it other than that. Just to say, if you want to be in a place where you can go to lunch with other writers and directors and executives and build that business, those people live in Los Angeles. They yeah. just do. Yeah. Um, you can be a giant fish in a smaller pond. What the Rooster Teeth guys have done is amazing. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely amazing. Um, and their business is phenomenal. It's much better than my business. Um, but it's a giant fish in a small pond. It's a different universe. It just is. Does most of the talent that you represent, then they're located out in L.A., I'm assuming? Uh, talent's different. Um, talent, a lot of it is in L.A., but we, I mean, we represent... 30 people that live in South Africa, 30 Australians, Europe. Talent's different because talent will bubble in a different way. Mm -hmm. um, when, you, when, you, when you cast people, it's pretty obvious who's talented and who's not. Like, I know it's a tough thing to say to people. Well, how much to be an actor or an actress in here? Anybody? 
good call. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's pretty obvious more often than not who's talented and who's not. Um, Because, and yes, you can always hone your craft and work through your craft and get better at your craft and your craft. Um, More often than not, crappy actors and actresses are weeded out very quickly. You can be a crappy writer for a long time if you have the right friends and go to the right restaurants and the right places to go and have the right people. You can make a lot of money for a long time. <laughs> we have a lot of wannabe writers in here, actually. I have lots of advice for writers. Yeah. They, in the q and I'm sure they'll ask you some questions. I'm only mildly, only mildly frightened. <laughs> so, okay. what You've mentioned the issue of democratization of you know, ability to put your material up, make your material. What do you see as some challenges that people wanting to break into the industry or work in the industry these days might face? Our students, for example. Um, I think honesty is a big challenge. <laughs> I do. I think that what's happened is when you take away, when you, when you, so like the scariest thing I've ever seen, who knows what VidCon is in here? Okay. So I went to like the second or third VidCon a few years ago. I'm never going again unless they make me. Um, so we all, you all heard of the stage mom, right? You know, that is the little Betsy, put your hair up. We got to go to an audition. Okay. I've never seen anything scarier than the internet mom <laughs> because, and it's a whole new thing, right? So little Betsy, I don't know why I picked that. Anyone here named Betsy? You want me to change my analogy? Perfect. Um, so when little Betsy would go to auditions, there's a room full of middle-aged, you know, middle-aged, mostly middle-aged white Jewish guys. Um, it's just what's in that room going, Betsy's not talented, you're out. And eventually, no matter how hard mom pushes, there is a wall that Betsy can't get past. That is not true in the internet. And it's scary as hell. Because no matter how shitty little Joey's video is about wanting to eat bananas backwards or whatever he wants to make a video about, his mom can make him do that video Every day, over and no one can stop him. So, to me, honesty becomes a problem because if you're crappy and no one's watching your videos, in the traditional businesses, someone goes, "I think you should think about that waitress job being permanent." Um, but on the internet, no one tells you that because you could ignore the comments, you could write them off as haters all you want, and you can move on. So. To me, one of the things you want to find is people will be honest with you. And I've been saying this, Richard's, this is not the first time Richard's come to a place where I've had a chance to talk. As soon as your friends tell you everything you do is great, get new friends. Because <laughs> everything you do isn't great. You have shitty ideas. There are ways to make your stuff better. That's just how it is. And that is, you want people around you who will go, I'm not sure we should do that. And even if you win and you win out, fighting for what you wanted to do is where – that's where the rubber hits the road. Because if you can't defend your idea to your friends, you certainly can't defend it to somebody who isn't your friend. That's good advice. Uh, what other changes have you seen or, or continuities in terms of from the old sort of film TV landscape to the new players? Are there certain things you talked about how YouTube and is reproducing a lot of the schedule and you – know. I mean, for, for me, I think you can take solace in the fact that storytelling has been the same for 10,000 years, <laughs> give or take, and it's not going to change. So a three-minute story still has a beginning, middle, and end. It still has a three-act structure. It still has a character you care about. It still communicates a story or an emotion or a feeling. Um, a short story does. A novel does. So all of this desire to reinvent and reinvent, let's do it different, let's do it different, you can't get away from what the truths are. And the truths are 
do I care about that character? Do I care about that world? And do I want to be part of that and engage in it? And then the difference starts to become how good are you at engaging me in it and telling me that story and driving me in it, making me care about the characters over and over again. Cool. So what buzzwords or what uh, news developments should our students be paying attention to these days? What, should, what do you think they should be knowing about or learning about hmm. that you haven't already discussed? Interesting. Um, oh, I mean, it feels to me, you know, like the the biggest thing in the we were talking about this outside a little bit. The biggest thing in the history of media will launch in three weeks, and it's been around for forty years. So, you know, Star Wars is going to cover every single piece of every piece of media. It is the first ever property that it legitimately can claim ownership over three generations of worldwide youth. Um, and have all stayed with it. So to me, that goes back to storytelling. Um, the only reason it matters is because in that first movie in 1977, people cared about it. For and, and going back to the perseverance part, which I guess is the ultimate lesson, is the only person who cared about that movie was George Lucas. Everybody else thought it was a piece of shit. Nobody wanted to put it out. <laughs> and that's why he got $4 billion from Disney um, and not Fox. So perseverance matters. Um, and at the end of the day... Um, you know, the, the reason we were able to release reality show as a movie was because Adam Rifkin and I were believed that it could be. And Sony said no, everybody said no, but we kept on pushing because we believed in it and we persevered, which I guess is old and new. Yeah. Do you think that there's particular companies that are doing interesting things right now besides your own, of course? Particularly interesting? No. I think everybody's trying to find what the new formula is, which is no different than what everybody used to do and try to find what the new formula is. Just because it's packaged differently doesn't mean it's not the same thing. So um, whether it's full screen or us or Netflix or Amazon or HBO, the, to me, the thing that's the most interesting change of pattern is binge viewing. And this idea that you don't have to, that, that people will watch things very quickly. I think the most interesting piece of all of that, and it's part of why the Star Wars thing is so interesting to me intellectually, is the water cooler is dead. Um, so even like things like Walking Dead, even with their you know thirty million views or you know thirty million people watching an episode, can't find the thirty million people. It's not Friends the way Friends was when the people in the back of the room and the people in the front of the room, where you went on to work on Friday, go, oh my God, did you see Ross in his pants? It was hilarious. That doesn't exist anymore. So that piece of, you know, even when um, House of Cards came out, the last cycle of it, the first cycle was really, really interesting. And every sort of people watched it and it grew and it binged. The last cycle came out and kind of dudded because so many people binged it that, and it wasn't great. It's just okay. So we have 20 minutes left. Um, <laughs> so, You're ruining it. So, um, so that didn't kill it, but it hurt it because people were able to say, nah, you don't have to watch it. Nah, it wasn't as great as the first one. And all of a sudden, the speed of that is just interesting. The speed of which things can be made, made or broken is terrifying if you're a person paying for it. See pixels. <laughs> well, actually, everyone who's come in here seems to have an opinion on Netflix. So I'm curious if you have any I love Netflix. Yeah, I mean, as a business is what they're doing. I'm, dude, that guy's badass. <laughs> he's badass because he built his business the way you're supposed to build a business, right? He 
when all of you were three. Um, so Netflix used to come in an envelope in this thing called the mail. Now, what the mail is, it's that box inside of your parents' house where you open it up and a guy comes by a truck. Um, he was a, he's a genius. He spent his time building a brand that had value that on an algorithm that actually is right more often than it's wrong, which is fascinating. Then he didn't he was decisive about his decision making, which to me is why he's a genius. Is he instantly said, done, I'm never delivering a DVD, go online, pay for it, don't pay for it, I don't care, have a nice day. And by he you mean Reed Hastings, I'm assuming. I do mean Reed Hastings, that's correct. Um, Although everyone has heard their names many a time. But then Ted, I mean, but, but then what Ted did was he said, okay, now how do I build on the back of that and how do I and how do I do this? And as a business, um, every single executive at Netflix is allowed to make their own deals. They don't have to talk to their bosses within certain parameters. They can buy and sell across the entire company and boards because they have infinite shelf space. Um, now, that becomes a challenging piece, which is where do you find value in a world of infinite self-space, which is interesting. But what that, the habit changing is huge. Then you go into what they're dealing with now, which is people saying, oh, I don't even notice I pay for it. It's a utility. It's not even a choice. It's like I have water. I have, you know, I got water. I got heat. I got electric. And I have Netflix. Um, where that's, the people that that's absolutely slaughtering are the networks who don't understand and are still with their heads in the sand about trying to figure out how to deal with that. And then again, the other thing that I think is most important, and I wouldn't underestimate this in the current media landscape, is the value of sports. Because the only thing left that's immediate is sports, which is fascinating. Um, where it's why the NFL is so valuable, it's why the NCAA is valuable. Um, it's the only thing that matters that you have to watch when you have to watch it, because at the end of the day, the information is disseminated to you on your phone instantly afterward. And now, now it has no value. So it has immediacy value, but it has almost no shelf life value, which is also fascinating, as opposed to storytelling, which has massive shelf life value and has lost all of its immediacy value. <laughs> I like that. That's nice. Uh, OK, so let me go ahead and open this up for questions. I can't wait. I'm excited. OK, very cool. So who wants to? Oh, Tim's getting up with the microphone. Any questions? Start us off. Yep. There. You do not need a microphone to talk to me from right there. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, you said you had a lot of advice for writers. I do. Do you just want to like share just go all after of it? it? Go all of it, all of it. So here, here's my number one piece for advice for writers. If you're a writer, then you have to write. So I can't tell you how many people I've sat in a room with that are writers, including those, including one that was nominated for an Academy Award, who can't write. So to me, the, it is the only. There's a reason why. Um, there's institutionalized Hollywood jealousy about writers, okay? The business hates them. Um, and there's a reason why it hates them. Um, and what it'll be interesting to see if it hates internet stars for the same reason, which will be interesting. It's too soon to tell. But the reason why the business hates writers is because writers are the only ones in the entire business that can do their craft whenever they so choose to do it and can be shitty on Monday and great on Friday and nobody remembers Monday. And it's been that way, um, frankly, Back to the days of vaudeville. Okay, so if you're a director, you need a camera, you need a cast, you need a writer. I'd like to think you need a producer. Sometimes you don't. Um, but you need all these other things in order to practice your craft. If you are an actor, you need a script. You need someone who's invented a world. You need a story. Um, if you're a cameraman or any of the other pieces, you need those other pieces. If you're a director in today's world and you make a shitty movie, you will not work for five years if you ever get to work again. 
It is vicious. It's called director jail. It's a real thing. It's not a real jail. But it might as well well be. Um, Writers don't have writer jail, okay? I will tell you, I will not tell you his name, but I will tell you that the worst script I have ever read in my entire life was written by a guy who was nominated for an Oscar, not this year, but the year before. Um, Every one of you in here has seen his movies. You've probably seen five of them. Um, It was so bad that I looked at my other producer who got it. He gave it to two producers, and we called each other and said, is this a test? Because we, we didn't because John Hughes um, was famous for doing that. He was famous for pitching his agents and representatives really shitty ideas and then firing them when they, when they told him they were great ideas, um, which he did to a friend of mine. Um, but it was that's how bad it was. We were like, this is a joke, right? Like, what are we going to say? Because <laughs> we didn't want to be totally honest. It's Hollywood. Um, but uh, and, and he went on from that to be nominated for an Oscar and whatever. That script never saw the light of day. But no one could tell him he couldn't do it again. So historically, I believe that's why there's an institutional dislike of writers. Every one of you has a pen and paper in here. Half of you, I would imagine the vast majority of you have computers also. You can do whatever you want. All you got to do is do this or do this, and no one can stop you. And that, to me, is the, the, the only mark of being a writer is to fight that blank screen, fight that blank page, and do it over and over again. For the record, I can't do it. So I'm a really good producer. I pitch ideas all day long. I, I can sit there and fix your script all day long. Ask, ask around the room. I, I will read it. I will tell you how to fix it all day long. I cannot sit there in front of that screen and do it. I will be all over ESPN and Angry Birds so fast. It's ridiculous. Um, I guess I kind of want to follow up because the system you're talking about doesn't really sound sustainable. Like There'd be a ton of shit out there from really bad writers. So like I guess what do you look for in a script? Like What seems viable that you want to make? Everybody's different. So, I mean, for me, it's, it's hard to say. Um, I mean, I've read scripts and said, you know, this is great. When I read, the, when I read Patty Jenkins' first draft of Monster, which Charlize Theron went on to win the Oscar for, I thought it was brilliant. Patty's other agent, who remained nameless, hated it. Same script, read it on the same weekend. Um, it's hard to say. I mean, it is, it is a subjective business, and that's the hardest part about it. So, um, I mean, you Eli Roth fans in here? Okay, so when I represented Eli, um, the people who, we forced the people at the company to represent Cabin Fever. People didn't think it was very good. I loved it. I saw the business of it. I thought it would be great. It's what launched Eli's career. People didn't like it internally. Then it went to Toronto, and literally, you could sit in the theater in Toronto and watch people walk out to go make bids on the movie during the movie. So, it's a subjective business. So it's hard to say what I like is different from what other people like and don't like. Um, and, there, and as much as there are real right and wrong for how you tell a story and where act breaks go and how you construct things, if you're really, really good, you can ignore them. So would you credit those things getting made because it's so subjective to the perseverance of the person who wrote the project or because one person like you, like you especially like something, and you forced it so hard that it ended up everything. In the everything works. needs a champion. So sometimes that's the writer, sometimes it's the director, sometimes it's an actor, sometimes it's a producer. Um, a lot of times it's a writer and a director. A lot of times writer-directors, for the most part, when they're combined, are incredibly perseverant. Um, but sometimes it's a writer who's got a great partner that does those pieces. Very rarely will somebody write a great script that gets sold and gets made in a year. 
I mean, there are movies being released now that I covered when I was in the mailroom at CAA. That is true. A long time ago. Well, thank you. After the internet um, and YouTube mainly, what do you think is the next source of media content? Your phone. It's all about your phone. Yeah? That the whole cool. world's about your phone. I don't know what comes after. I don't know what comes after your phone. I mean, honestly, like to sit here now, it's it's it's. I mean, I've been very involved with the university ever since I left, and it's fascinating to me. I mean, when I was in Richard's first class, there's no universe we could have ever conceived of watching a movie on our phone. I mean, just like our phones were still attached to the center console of our car, um, like that. It's completely inconceivable. So it's hard to say, okay, I wonder what's next. I personally think Google Glass is the stupidest idea I've ever seen in my entire life. But who knows? It might take off. I, I, who knows? But this idea of media at that level of quality being in your pocket at all times is beyond, like, who knows? The only thing that's holding that back is, is bandwidth and pipes and how that goes. Because, you know, when you go to certain, when you go to foreign countries, you go to certain places in the United States where there's, Full high-speed wireless connections to your phone. What do you need your TV for? Talking about so it seems like network shows are being created and dropped at a rapid rate. So going back to where you're saying about sports, so do you think sports are kind of holding them together as far as live television goes? Never even wanting to binge and then wait seven days to watch their favorite show for or? networks. Uh, I mean, what a network is is a different means a different thing than it was supposed to mean, right? So a network used to mean that you had a station probably in New York or Los Angeles and you had a deal with a bunch of people who'd invested a shitload of money in towers that ran around the country and they agreed to run your programming for four hours a night. That's what it used to mean. It doesn't mean that anymore, right? Every, the, the big four own every channel and every major network. There are no such things as a network and those towers are being used for bird sanctuaries. They're, <laughs> they're completely and totally useless. So... Um, I think sports holds those pieces together because those companies can still invest against what the, what the asset value of those sports are. But taking sports as a loss leader is fine because you want to run those pieces, right? So don't fool yourself. The NFL doesn't need to play football on Thursday. What they need is to take the money out of the movie company's pockets and the car company's pockets to launch cars and stuff going into the weekend. That's what they need to do. So the, there's a reason behind everything. So that sort of begins to look at where you go. So are they losing money on those things? Maybe. Um, how do you find all the pieces of money? Nobody can track all the pieces of money anymore. It all just kind of flows in and flows around and magical things happen. Um, but I'm not sure that that's the only thing holding those things up because look at all the different places there are sports, right? So, you know, take Notre Dame football for a second. Not a big fan of Notre Dame football, but take it for a second. Um, they, their big game this weekend wasn't on NBC. It was on NBCSN. So look at the NHL, right? It, as popular as it's become in major cities, we go back to the last couple of years, the NHL has had a top three market in the Stanley Cup the last five years, I think, actually, between L.A., New York, and Chicago. They're on a network that's watched by less people than in this room. Like, they pushed all those down to NBCSN again. So, And that's a cable network. It's not traditionally a network. So hard to say where the immediacy value points. Um, look at how much the World Series is on FS1 and not on Major Fox this year, on, on regular Fox. But those pieces are all now tied together because you don't care, right? The only reason why NBC, ABC, CBS, and Fox used to fight for 2, 4, 7, and 11, that's LA, it's almost the same, I think it's the same in New York too, um, was because it was on the, the closer part of your dial. 
But for those of you who have DirecTV, you don't care about punching in 206 or 11. It doesn't matter to you. You just know that DirecTV is, that ESPN is 206. So that value, a proximity value, doesn't matter. What's really more valuable to them, and the Discovery Channels have done a great job of this, is that block from like, who has DirecTV in here? Nobody has DirecTV? You guys have digital cable? Okay, but all those blocks where they're all together is where the value is. So you don't want to be a home improvement channel and be on 700 outside of the block. So that's sort of where the value is, is sort of proximity value. It's, we want to be in the right neighborhood. I'm actually just uh, going to follow up. Is this? Oh, uh, with a question that I forgot to ask earlier, which is. I don't want to answer it. <laughs> <laughs> I know. No more questions for you. Um, the global market. Right, uh, how much, you mentioned you have talent outside the US. Are there certain territories or financiers or regions that you're thinking about when you're developing content these days? Uh, I'm actually in the middle of a show that will shoot all in China, which make it pay for by Chinese money. Um, we'll see what happens. Um, yes and no. I think that for talent is still super important because financing is based on where, where the markets go. So there is benefactor television, there's benefactor movies where, hey, here's $5 million, we make a movie, I don't care whatever I make out of it. But when you're in the world of um, how do I make a product that I can sell, and I hate to ruin it for everybody, that's what we do, we make a product that we can sell. Um, the art part is kind of secondary. Um, the, the who's in it really matters. So um, my, my, my favorite is Wesley Snipes, because I think it's hilarious. Even today, does anybody even know who Jean-Claude Van Damme is? Anyone in the front 10 rows knows Van Damme is. You know what Wesley Snipes is? Okay, so these two people are huge international stars. No one in America has been to see a movie with them in it and paid 12 or $15 to see a movie in 15 years. But if you have an action movie with Jean-Claude Van Damme in it, you can still, to this day, finance a movie around the world. Wesley Snipes, the same thing. Um, Arnold Schwarzenegger, despite the fact that he's hilarious in California, gets movies made all because of his value all over the world. Television shows, packaging of television shows also starts to fall into that category of who's the talent in front of the camera, who's the talent behind the camera, and the value of a property behind it, be it a book, another TV show, or what have you, is huge. Oh, Richard. For those of you who don't already know, I was in Richard's first ever class. 8.30 in the morning. Yes, sir. I haven't done that since. Um, <laughs> Just wondering, what, what do you read on regular, other than ESPN.com, what do you read on a regular basis? Uh, I actually read a, on a regular basis, in, in terms of trade publications. Um, what, what should smart people be doing in terms of their reading? So this is an interesting question. So in terms of your regular reading, um, everything is so bite-sized now, it's not hard to read it. So... You know, when I was, in, even when I was a baby agent, we used to have to read this thing called Variety, which was a magazine that we used to be about that thick. They used to publish it every day, and it was, and you'd literally start your day reading it. I don't know a single person who's read a Variety in five years. Um, Hollywood Reporter is published once a month, and it's really more like People Magazine now. It's barely a magazine. Um, and, the, and Variety, when it does come out, is literally like four pages. It's embarrassing. It's like a pamphlet. Um, deadline, checking deadline, I know in that universe... Um, for me personally, I actually read a lot of literature and classics um, because I do think that people don't read that stuff anymore. And you, the entertainment business as likes to play like it's highfalutin. So that universe of going back and reading those pieces of what helpless storytelling 
things that are classics are classics for a reason. Um, so, in the other thing I think is read stuff that people aren't reading. You know, Wired is an interesting thing to read in that space. Believe it or not, by the way, Texas Monthly is like the most read magazine in California because there are, it's a, a it's very well written, but B, it's, there's a lot, they write a lot of really good stories in that universe. People, I know a lot of people that read that. Um, I mean, that was a crappy answer. I apologize. All right. But I've, got, just, I've got another. Yes. So, so back to your definition, your, your split between lawyers versus managers versus agents. If you're a mid-level actor or writer, people know who you are, but you're not a superstar, and you've got a go-getter manager like you, and you've got a, a, a lawyer who knows how to do his contracts, why do I need an agent? You don't. You don't anymore. I mean, the reality is, is the, the, agencies, um, the agencies are great places for people who need packaging or need to be pushed through a system and forced into something. But the truth is that you don't anymore. I mean, you used to. Um, they don't block anybody off of packages anymore, off of TV staffs. Um, that doesn't really happen anymore. The, there are no auditions that go on in town on a weekly basis that I don't know about, not me personally, but that, they, that managers in this analogy don't know about. Um, we can get you in it at wherever you want to go because, because a manager of repute gets those meetings. We have those relationships. Um, your lawyer makes your deals. You don't. Um, what you don't, what you, what you won't have happen for you is for fighting a project um, down the road won't happen. If, you, if there's a passion project, a script of yours or whatever, without those people around you, that won't happen. Um, you may not get in the room with the same level of other directors, particularly directors and writers that you may or may not get in the room with. Um, but again, if you're someone coming up, at that level, someone will get you in the room because you have a reputation and you're in that spot. So I'm going to finish with the question I ask all our guests as the last question, which is, what are you watching these days? <sighs> <laughs> I'm, I'm really testing you, aren't I? Um, I love The Americans, um, which I think was the greatest pitch ever for a television show. Um, we So I just, we, we watched that. Um, my wife watches Scandal. I surf the internet while she's doing it. Because um, I, have you ever watched Scandal? I mean, no, no, nobody, right? So I had a huge logic problem with it. I literally hit pause this week and complained about how stupid it was. Um, and then I got sent to my room, which is where I wanted to go in the first place. Um, so, uh, so watch that. Um, what else do I slug through? Um, I love Homeland. I love The Affair. Um, and this is this is the middle-aged white guy's viewing log by me. <laughs> Just run right through it. Uh, I watch a lot of sports. Um, and little-known secret, which I will share with everyone here: people in the industry don't spend a lot of time watching TV or going to the movies. Um, I don't. Actually, one reason I asked the question. I, the truth is, is the vast majority of us, and I'm not, and I'm not. I, I will speak for myself, but I know a lot of other people that are in the same boat. When you've been dealing with movies and TV shows until eight o'clock at night, you want you want to put on the stupidest thing you can behind you, and let it sort of do its thing behind you. Um, there's a lot of discovery that goes on amongst us. Of I locked, I watched this, and what do you think of this? And a lot of that sort of stuff goes on. But 
there's not a lot of appointment viewing that I personally do. And going to the movies is super hard. I have two kids, and it's super expensive. Um, so I have a big stack of screeners at home that I'm just like, <laughs> right through. But that's, uh, that's that, my That answer. seems like a good place to end. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Media Industry Conversations. This has been a production of the Department of Radio, Television, and Film in the Moody College of Communication at the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, visit our site, rtf.utexas.edu. This course was made possible by the work of Dr. Elisa Perrin and Cindy McCreary with lead TA Tim Piper. And the program was produced and edited by the technical TA, that's me, Kyle Rather. We hope you join us again next time for another media industry conversation. Get along, little doggy, get along.